Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Griefsters. I hope you're having an okay week wherever you are listening. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of The Griefcast. This is season 10 of The Griefcast. I know, absolutely staggering. Thank you so much for joining me, continuing to join me on this conversation of grief and death from various people from all walks of life. I have mentioned it um, a few times, but I have a book coming out. It is coming out in January. It's called You Are Not Alone as I say at the end of every episode, and it is published by Bloomsbury Tonic. Now, you can pre-order it in all the usual places. If you think you are probably going to buy the book anyway, uh, please do a pre-order if you you don't mind. Uh, It's very helpful uh, for me and the book. It really helps um, the various book places know that this book is a popular book. So I would hugely appreciate it if you've ever found the podcast useful or helpful in any way and you think, yeah, I I am going to buy that book, then a pre-order would be massively appreciated. Um, If you've already done it thank you so much I genuinely yeah I'm really excited about it I am really excited it's everything I've learned from the show and um quotes from the show and and all that sort of thing all put down in one place and I, I think it's genuinely useful um so that's um anyway that's that bit done thank you for listening this week I'm very excited to talk to the incredible, the amazing, she's she's one of the grief elders, guys, she's in the gang. It is the fabulous writer, Kathy Rensenbrink. Um, Kathy is just, uh, I mean, she's up there for me, you know, with the Julia Samuel, the Helen McDonald's, the, you know, the Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie books about grief that you need to read her incredible memoir the last act of love came out a few years ago now and it is yeah it's one of my favorite grief books it's just she just she just gets it her writing gets it she's written lots of other books as well a manual for heartache which is 
a broader look at um, not just grief, other things, how to survive this world. Uh, Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books. And she has a novel as well, Everyone is Still Alive, and a book about writing as well, called Write It All Down. Um, she's, she's brilliant. She's amazing. I've really loved her for a long time, and I was a bit... Um, yeah, chuffed. <laughs> That's anyone I can think of. Really chuffed when she agreed to come on the show. Um, Kathy came in to talk to me about her brother, Matty, uh, who the book The Last Act of Love is all about. And yeah, we just we just chatted grief. I hope you enjoy. So who are we remembering today? We are remembering my brother, Matthew. Matthew. Matty. Matty. Um, yeah. And I know I've, you have written about Matthew in your... I think it was your first book, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, The Last Set Love. So how long ago did Matty die? Well, a very long time ago. I mean, it's complicated because he was knocked over by a car mm. and then he never regained consciousness, but he was alive for another eight years, wow. which was just uh, awful. So... I never feel, when I think about how long ago it was, mm. I tend to date it for myself from, the, you know, the night when everything changed was the night when he was knocked over yeah. by the car. And then the next eight years were basically a really long death. So that was in 1990 mm. and I was 17 and I'm now 49. So I'm not very good at sums, but I think if I've done the sums, I was thinking about it this morning. So it's 32 years wow. ago. Um, wow. And then in lots of ways does feel completely immediate yeah. like it feels like it was sort of nanoseconds ago um god yeah it's interesting isn't it so how old was he when he when the accident happened he was 16 so he was a year younger than me well he was 13 months younger than me i used to like to say 13 months younger than me and nine inches taller than me <laughs> <laughs> and he was very um he was really funny, apart from everything else. He was sort of smart and funny, and yeah, I mean, I just loved him very much in a really uncomplicated way because, of course, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't almost know then that I was, I didn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't particularly aware in lots of ways mm. how fortunate I was. I wouldn't have said, if someone had asked me the morning of the accident, I probably would have, I don't know, I, I'd have probably been um, preoccupied with, I don't know what my boyfriend was doing that annoyed me or whatever. Yeah. I wouldn't have said, like, I've got this great life with these wonderful parents and we live in this pub in Yorkshire and I've got this amazing brother and everything is so brilliant. That's one of the things about grief, isn't it? I think that recurs again and again and again. People say, I didn't know how happy I was. I didn't know how lucky I was. I so I didn't really know that. And then that's when I think it, I think of it, I've come to think of it actually as a, uh, you know, as a guillotine, as a blade, as a separator that that's, that that night he got knocked over and life as it was just became, it was just a different thing from then on. It's so, um, I mean, yeah, grief is, like you said, I think guillotine is a beautiful and hard metaphor, but true. Your life is so completely different, but especially when it comes with your situation, when it is a sudden accident, because it literally, like, that from that moment, whereas I think my dad died of cancer, so you've got like all this other like when you got the diagnosis and then when they got sicker and then when they died it's a sort of a, like you said this slower process but you yeah because of what happened to Matty it's such a I guess a clear point in the timeline of when everything disappeared I thought what you're saying is so interesting about um 
just happiness because it it's a real cliche and I I don't it's really hard sometimes I think you just can't know how happy you are <laughs> until, no, something, no. until something goes because you think oh could I have done something differently especially at 17 you just can't really appreciate these things you, no. because you don't know what it's like for any alternative no you don't and I think you can't as well I kind of I don't think and I don't think it's almost like <clears throat> appropriate I don't want to mm. run round to it, it, there was a stage where I kind of thought like I thought like why did nobody warn me that it was possible that life might do this? Why did I not yeah. know? Like, how could I not know? And then the more I think about life, the more I think that, that that's always the point of it. It sort of has its way with you and yeah. you, you can't know, nor would you want to anticipate, you know. Think about it a lot with my son. I've got a son who's 12. And of course, he does know much more about death and disaster than I did, partly because um, I think I finished the book when he was four um and so of course you know my professional life then became about right you know talking about what that book was and especially because of the pandemic and doing zooms at home um, and because he comes to festivals and he meets people and so he's just very aware that he's where people die and people are sad Mm -hmm. and he knows all that stuff but again I don't I don't want him to I don't want him to almost like know it too much if you see what I mean I, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to feel that our job with our children is to prepare them for the fact that terrible things happen <laughs> but it's hard it's really, isn't it yeah it's really hard I can really really relate to that because so I've got um yeah two small kids and I obviously do a podcast about death and they mm. and she they can't well the younger one doesn't have a clue but um the older one slightly knows I mean, and she knows that obviously my that she doesn't have a grandpa and he's dead, and that my husband, both his parents are dead, mm-hmm. so she's aware. But I, I find I can't lie about it. So I like I I worry exactly like you're saying that I'm over preparing for her. But like in that terms of like when I hear a parent say like I'll never leave you, I think well yeah you hope so. <laughs> like, yeah, I, hope yeah, that won't happen. I can't. It sticks in my throat, and I always find I have to say things like, "I will do my best not to leave you," but like you know, I love you. That's what matters. Like I try and steer it that way, but I can't promise the things that I feel like I was promised. Everything will be fine. Of course, nothing bad will ever happen because my parents were like, "Oh, don't be silly," you know. Everybody's fine, and they also were unaware of what you know what was around the corner. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, I think you should, I, I mean, I just, it's a really big thing for me. I don't lie to Matt. So if he, mm. I, I don't force conversations on him, but if he asks me anything ever, I try to find an age appropriate way to tell him the truth. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's really important. And a friend of mine said actually that he changed what after, I, I'd written about this somewhere. I can't remember whether it's in the first book or in one of the others, but a friend of mine who'd read that said that it changed the way he spoke to his kids because I think his youngest child at the time was very nervous, kept saying to him, Dad, mm. promise me you won't die. And he kept saying to him, I promise, I promise. Then he read the thing I wrote and then started saying, actually, that's not within my control. But what I promise mm. is I really love you. And actually that la- love does last, even if something uh, really bad happened. And um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying I write about it, but I just think it's an important, um, I feel it's an important principle. And I think it's, Again, what, how are we serving our children? I think it's like a really broad thing about the way we bring up our kids, that we feel that in the face of loads of evidence to the contrary, we've got to sort of sell them this perfect life full of plastic dinosaurs yeah. and fluffy toys and nothing's ever going to go wrong. We're surrounded by loads of evidence at the moment that loads of things go wrong and things are really unfair. And I think it's kind of, I don't know, it doesn't serve them to 
pretend about it. My my father-in-law died when Matt was about 18 months. And in some ways, I think it's quite good that he was, you know, he was at a funeral before he really knew. And it was quite cute. And there was this, he got confused. So he's, um, he's Dutch, my husband. So Opa, grandpa was what Matt called his grandfather, right, yeah. Opa. And he would say, again, in that way that kids do, they're very direct. Say, Opa's dead. Said, yes. <laughs> then there was this yes. misunderstanding because he thought Oprah was in Devon. <laughs> so that was good. And what I thought at that funeral, actually, again, which was in Holland, and I felt that the Dutch were, were less squeamish about death than we mm. would have been. You know, like my father-in-law was in the house for a few days, which would have happened in this country a couple of generations ago. Yeah, Doesn't yeah. anymore. And it was, you know, again, I, it, it was weird that he was there, mm. but it was also kind of beautiful. And then, the, you know, my son and um, his little cousins walked behind the coffin and I thought actually maybe it's not just that we shouldn't try to pretend to children that death doesn't happen but actually their function in this is that they are cheering us all up you know you know my little niece Joanne was scattering rose petals and there was something about the presence of the children that I thought was really beautiful because again it is that thing isn't it that it does um I think we have a real tendency to treat death and grief as kind of like inconvenient party poopers you know mm, this isn't the yeah. consumerist promise how, you yeah, know, yeah. How's, how's this happened this isn't supposed to be happening to me I'm supposed mm. to be you know I'm supposed to be going off in this direction and I don't want this to happen because I've been promised that if I just like buy the right stuff everything will be okay <laughs> yeah. and you know not true yeah i think you you just go really nicely and i think that's what i'm always trying to get across when when i do talks or anyone asks me about it not in the club inverted commas of like you're not saying every day is doomed and awful but like that it will it's gonna happen it just is gonna happen i think yeah the idea of party boomers of like 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 it's something you can control or something unfortunate that happens to people who have bad luck you know like they didn't they didn't read the right book or do the right thing or they weren't careful as well like we love to believe that if we follow all these magical rules we'll be okay and the idea that it's like yeah just just fucking happens (laughs) (laughs) and kids at funerals interesting my mother-in-law my um what's the word niece i was gonna say cousin she's not my cousin my niece um was there and it was tricky. She, I think she was about six and it was hard, but also I agree with you. It it offered, sounds so corny, but it did offer a hope of like, oh, there is life, isn't there? And there's joy. And there's a person here who doesn't really understand. So it's running around and treating it like a party. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it reminds you of the two truths of grief that you can be devastated and at the same time still enjoy something like it, it doesn't yeah. it's not a permanent state and when you have a kid at a funeral well, obviously it's very personal not all children would want to do it or understand it but i think it is like you said the the idea of not being squeamish about it which i do think yeah particularly british english culture is mm. um and it's not just as i've spoken before like i went to sweden and did a gig there for Griefcast and they were worse than we are. They were absolutely <laughs> awful. Like they just couldn't even say the name of the podcast. It was like, oh, grief cars. Like, so I, I was heartened that it wasn't just us, but it's nice to know that the Dutch are more, <laughs> more on the other side of like, you know, it happens. Yeah, they have that. I think Dutch people in general have that sort of practical matter of fact vibe about them. I'm half Irish as well. So I've been to quite a lot uh, yeah. of Irish funerals and the way my dad is again around it. Though I do that thing, I never know 
um, I didn't really grow up surrounded by other Irish people. So, like, my dad is Ireland for me, and Ireland yeah, yeah. is my dad. So I'm inclined to think that, like, everybody in Ireland is like him. They might not be. Maybe he's just <laughs> very emotional and likes laughing and crying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think... When I think back to my own childhood, you know, so my my mum's dad died when I was nine, and I remember it so strongly. I remember her crying in the bath, and I remember us talking about it. And I remember... And again, now when I look back on it, not that I think she was particularly aware of it, but again, she was sort of kind of slightly training me for when I had to yeah. talk to grief about, you know, when I had to talk to my child about grief. And then I remember, again, I remember my dad's, you know, someone in Ireland died really, like, suddenly and really sadly. And we went to the funeral, and I remember, I think I was 14 then, and I remember my dad's was just, my dad was distraught. But again, I don't think it was... A bad thing for me to see that I don't think I don't think that was a bad thing and and again it's a big Irish funeral and the open coffin and loads of people wailing and I remember this thing where there was a sort of there were so many people it was a bit overwhelming and I slightly got almost like it was like almost a, cr- a crowd yeah and I kind of almost like got kind of caught in this crowd and was sort of slightly being carried away almost from my cousins and then I remember my one of my cousins, he, he sort of reached out and he said, she's family. And there was this rope surrounding the family, this rope kind of dividing the family from the wow. sort of general mourners and well-wishers. He said, she's family. And then someone kind of ushered me the other side of the rope. And then that really became a metaphor for me forever, this thing of whether or not you're behind the rope. Where, where are you? Wow, in the, wow, yeah. Where are you in the setup? And I, because I remember thinking, I, something in me felt a bit, um, you know, I knew, I thought I knew I wasn't affected by this. Uh, so although I was allowed behind the rope, I knew this. I knew this wasn't. I knew this wasn't my tragedy. I knew it yeah. wasn't a tragedy for yeah. me, like it was for her children. I knew it wasn't a tragedy for me that it was for her siblings. I knew it wasn't a tragedy for me that it was for my dad and. Um, and then, of course, and I really remember it when, when Matty was knocked over. I remember at some point very quickly. I thought, well, I'm I'm behind the rope now. This is I really am behind the rope now. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? But then you can't, you know, you can't undo it, can you? You kind of just, you know, you're in the club, you're behind the rope, you're out the grief yeah. party. You know, it's kind of. <laughs> I really like that though because I've often heard the expression or I've used it like it's like a bomb blast and like sometimes you're at the epicenter and you're looking at it and sometimes you're like oh I heard it yeah and I, or I was around the corner and so I, I'm scared I'm afraid and I'm affected but I'm not yeah. as you said affected and yeah like I've definitely yeah different griefs you do you do sort of know where you're at from the epicenter don't you because you can be like oh I'm very sad and I knew them and that's sad or I'm yeah if it's you know, I'm behind the. I am really no one's. No, I'm not even close to being carried off into the crowd. <laughs> like I'm by the coffin. Yeah. Um, Again, I think it it kind of behoves you as a bereaved person to kind of have a sense of that. Like, yeah, of help. You know, I've been in a few situations in more recent years where I've just supported someone who is behind the rope, mm. and it's been very clear in my head that in this situation. Uh, I'm not, you know, how I feel about it doesn't really matter. My job is to yeah. support this person who's in this role. 
Um, but I mean, because so many things about death are so funny, aren't they? And I do think that one of the things, I mean, funerals are very funny. And one of the things that's funny is that there is kind of a terrible humour when, because you do get those people that just sort of over-assume, uh, yeah, want to make it all about them. Oh, the the, the professional mourner who yeah. turns up. Yes. And, and, and I remember that at my dad's funeral. It was like some people, like, unable to speak. To, oh, in such a state and me being like not crying and, you know and, and me thinking oh I think that's what I'm supposed to do <laughs> like yeah. I, I uh, that's my you've got my costume on can I have it but you you know you know what it's like as a human if someone is more emotional often you become less emotional because you're like oh you seem very upset maybe someone should get her a tea or something <laughs> like, you know it's like your dad has died you're like oh you you're okay and they're like I just he was so wonderful you're like yeah I know he was my dad uh okay it's very and I think actually we've talked about this as well like the further away you are it's easier to cry like often as we've said like people lose their emotion lose their shit at like a pet dying or someone they didn't know very well because it's like gives you this like safe space to go oh all the grief can come out but actually often what you're dealing with which I'm sure you must have had with Matty is like shock of like what what just happened did you did you I mean, he was so he was on life support. Is that right? For eight years, what was the situation? Yeah, so he he never regained consciousness really. So he was in a it's called a persistent vegetative state, which is just a horrible collection of words, um, which basically just means really brain damaged. He was basically yeah. as brain damaged as it's possible to be without being dead, really. Um, and so, and in the early years we obviously had a lot of hope that he would in somehow he would like sort of get better so we yeah. so in in a funny kind of way that wasn't oh I don't know it was it was a very active time um yeah. and then later on it was sort of about four years in for me uh when I suddenly I just realized in a flash which I don't I think it was because I'd been to I'd been to France for a few months um, and then came home and walked in. We'd like built this purpose-built extension to the pub so that he could live in there. And I just walked in and I just thought, actually, like I think the distance just basically let me see how fucked up it all was. And 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 just knew, and in that moment, I just knew like, well, he wouldn't want this. Mm. Um, which had always been felt again. That's something I feel squeamish about actually saying it's what he would have wanted it, like in yeah. general you know that again I think sometimes people claim to speak people claiming to speak for the dead or for those who can't speak for themselves I think I'd probably always been a bit over scrupulous about not wanting to speculate but it was really clear to me in that moment that this this is just just wasn't this just was well it was just sort of mad really um but we kind of carried on for a bit um, of course, there was my parents and me, and we all, I think, came to a decision at a different time about it. Mm. Um, and then eventually, after another couple of years, we went through the family court and had to petition, effectively. I can't remember what the word is. Basically, get people agree that to his lot that his life could end. Um, and that was again. They, they do it differently now because I think we were the I think we were the twelfth case, and of course nobody 
I don't see this in any way of blaming anyone that involved. Nobody knew what they were doing. And of course, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, how even psychological awareness has moved on so much, I, I think. One, you know, one of the yeah. good things about society is we've got a much better idea of what you should and shouldn't ask of people. So, I, I mean, I think I was, when I look back on it now, I was really screwed up by having to write down on an affidavit that I wanted my brother mm. to die. And oh, I, think, I think now they just don't... Because you feel really complicit, that's the thing. And I did think he should die, but again, what... I mean, they just have to do that. Um, mm. And without any kind of care, or without anyone else saying, this is a complex situation, it's not surprising yeah, and you. Yeah, you don't mean it, you're not yeah. saying it. It's like, yeah, um, yeah without someone to hold your hand and be yeah. like, the law is making you do this. But yeah. technology is, is also at play here, because... We have, like you said, we now have the ability to keep someone in that state, which a hundred years ago wouldn't have happened. And yeah. there's, it's so much stuff that's, yeah, that a human being should not have to make, don't write yes. that down. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I, I think it's like a cruel and unusual, that that's the thing, that we've, our technological ability outstrips our moral, ethical, mm. legal, emotional ability. And then I think we were kind of caught in the, you know, being in those early days, there just what there just wasn't any sense of the potential impact of actually of, of doing it. You know, yeah. um, and I think now, well, I know that now when it happens, there's more support for people, and someone would have said, "Oh, you know, someone would have said to my parents, send that nice daughter of yours for some therapy. She's falling yeah. apart. She's going mental. Do something with her. She doesn't know what to do with herself." So. Nobody did say that, and I just tried to kind of carry on, kind of being, you know, genuinely surprised that I, I, I did. I did feel. I mean, I, I've never doubted it was the right thing to do. I just utterly, completely know that. So there wasn't any doubt. Um, and I, the other thing as well was, which turned out not to be true. I really thought because I had grieved so much. I mean, it, sometimes mm-hmm. it felt like I'd spent eight years pretty much in tears or drunk, yeah, which isn't yeah. quite true. But I mean, I kind of, I'd, when I wrote my first book, actually, I remember saying to, like, the thing about it being repetitive, because basically, and then I got drunk and cried myself to sleep was just like the thing I could say pretty much every day for eight years. And I can't, I thought I must be empty. I kept thinking I was going to, I kept thinking the reservoir, the internal reservoir of no, tears. No, you think I can't do any more. There can't be anything left. There just can't be. Yeah. There I is, just there is. That, you know, and then I was like, oh. And, and also that it, that it was new, that there, that there was a new texture to this grief of not having him in the world um, and not knowing, again, not knowing what to, not knowing what to do with that. Um because for me, I think writing my book about it was such a significant thing. Because I'd never, I'd just never been able to almost like get out from under it. I found it such yeah, a yeah. all-encompassing, oppressive thing. Um, and so writing my book, I think, was, a, was, again, complex, but a really good thing. And I learned lots more about it because of writing my book. And, then, and, that, and actually then had loads more really good therapy. It feels more in the past than it ever has, but it still mm. also feels, in lots of ways, very present to me. But I've, I've reconciled with that as well. I've accepted that. I think it's that thing of... I think I used to hope that I would somehow be restored to factory settings, you know, yeah, that I could yeah. be rebooted. and Because, that, that, again, one of the very unhelpful things people say about grief, all that, you know, time's a great healer and it'll take a year and all that sort of stuff. 
And I realise now that that none of that's particular. I, I I don't think grief is a linear business at all. No, no, so, not at all. Not I've, at all. And it's really, and it's, yeah, I mean, I, God, I just, I really feel for you because not only is this extremely complex situation and unusual, but to be 17 when this kicks yeah. off as well, because I was 15 when my dad died and I, I know that feeling of like, I don't quite know what's going on because I'm just not old enough. Yeah. I just don't quite know and I don't have the words and I have a lot of feelings that's yeah. there, but I don't really know. And and then you sort of think, well, the best thing to do is kind of just pack this all up into a box, I guess. It's very messy. <laughs> Shove it down because like nobody wants this. And, and you're just so desperate to be normal and get back, like you said, to, you know, BC before, before death, before you knew what all these things meant. And to have that extended grief for eight years, like that's really, I mean, now, you know, there's all these terms of delayed grief and anticipatory grief. Like you must've been having all of, all of that because he was there, he's not there. You're like you said, there's this situation with, I remember that in the book so vividly of like you describing the situation, the extension and the, you know, all the machine, the the mini hospital that you create. Yeah. And we had that with my dad and um, actually both my parent-in-laws like died at home. My dad didn't, but it was very brief. You know what I mean? It was like they had cancer. So for like a month, there's a hospital bed and handrails are installed. And then suddenly they're all taken away again. And you're like, oh, a minute ago this, oh, okay. Like, but to have that for eight years is, is a long time. It's a long time to carry that. And to start the journey yeah. at 17, I think is, is, is hard. It's really hard. I don't know what seven, kind of 17 year old will, but I know from my being 15 of like, just not, just not really understood. Like I felt like 80% really made sense. And then there was this other chunk where I was like, I don't quite know. What do you mean he's dead? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, what <laughs> is that? I know it, I get it, but also what? Cause there's, a, you know, people spend their lives wrestling with the concept of death and endings and all this. And when you're a teenager, you're like, I really don't have the full vocab I haven't downloaded the full application yet so like, yeah definitely I think that's and I suppose as well I often thought like it was such a big percentage like sort of 17 when he was knocked over and then I was 25 when he died yes, so out of that out of that first 25 years uh, 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 you know of my life mm. especially when we don't really remember the first bit of life like just so much of it was was that but yeah. I feel that's something that somehow, I don't know whether it was writing the book or it was having the good therapy or whatever, but I, don't, I used to get very, um, oh, I don't know, just kind of think, I definitely have more of a sense of what happened. At, at one point, like, I didn't know anything about myself before the age of mm. 17. I couldn't remember anything about what ordinary life had been like. Wow. And I couldn't actually remember Matty before. I couldn't remember yeah. his original self. And somehow, writing the book, I feel... I I kind of have I've got that back and I have mm. um, I remember I remember somebody saying to me at some point that it was better to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all and I just thought I don't think that's true mm. I would so much rather have just not I, I mean I just can't I can't cope with this pain I just yeah. don't you know and I didn't think I'd be able to have a child because I didn't think I'd be able to you know and I've got, and over time actually I, don't, I mean I now would say it's better to have loved and lost yeah. and I think it's from my perspective, I'm really glad that I did have my brother for the years that I had him. But, you know, it, it's taken me a couple of decades to get to that yeah, yeah, yeah. point. And that's, <laughs> that's the thing of, like, 
I think when you're at the start of this journey, I hate the word journey, but it is like when people say things, time heals, you're like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) What, how is this useful? It's like someone being like, you're hungry. And you know what, in 20 years, I'm gonna give you a sandwich. You're like, great. I, right now, but I agree, I'm 20 plus years and, and you can see, oh, what they mean is, it just takes a long time to feel not healed, but to you know resolve all those feelings and to feel all the pain and to put it in your life in a way that makes sense to you and carry it and but it's very you know that doesn't make for the snappy bon mot that everybody wants to like no. hand to you and yeah I can see someone saying better to love to lost is the thing is though and what I'm obsessed with is the two truths two things exist at the same time like I'm very glad that I have 15 years with my dad like I'm you know I, I've interviewed people who have had less mm-hmm. and and I feel it does make you think god oh, I'm lucky in some ways but you know what I'm also sad I only got 15 years <laughs> like, yeah. both those things exist in the same breath and and I think sometimes people are so determined to like you said make um the linear narrative or like this is the truth so it's better that you had him then you never had him. You're like, yeah, but also I miss him. Like they, yeah. they, they're in the same bracket and, and it's all there together. And I think that's what happens with time is you're able to go, oh, I, could, I have both those feelings. But at the beginning, you're like, what's the truth? What's the truth? Is it a bad thing they happened or I'm lucky that it happened or I shouldn't feel any sadness or I should only feel sadness? And I think that is something again given our teenage you know the nature mm. of our teenage selves that and that i think is something that comes with wisdom and maturity isn't it that yeah, knowledge that yeah. this is true and this is true oh, and God, this yeah. is true rather than like this is true so this can't also be true yes yeah um, i was so binary with my thinking as a teenager yeah. it was like this is that's who i am that's yeah. like they're dead <laughs> they're dead and i don't even i'll never mention it again it doesn't matter that's done finished and then you realize oh you're not finished you're never finished you know you always keep changing and evolving yeah hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss welcome back to griefcast with carrie ad lloyd and did you say so your son is called 
Okay. Yes, he is, and I didn't. That was wasn't my intention because I've always thought, <laughs> to be honest, it's a little bit gruesome to call people after <laughs> dead loved ones. And then when we went for the, well, you know, the bit where you go for the scan and they shit, they, you know, you know that you've got. And I'd had a miscarriage, so the last time I'd gone for a scan, it was to find out that the baby wasn't there. So oh, it, it felt very, very emotional. And then um, just at the moment where the sonographer said you know when I sort of realised everything was okay and it, it just utterly felt um, it just felt like the right thing to do really. It's also my dad's name so mm-hmm. again it felt a little bit like it didn't just feel like I was sort of naming him after my dead yeah, brother. Yeah. What we said was we'd call him after both his grandfathers so Matthew Yan um, and, and, you know, and also it's my brother's name a couple of times I've wondered whether but again he became a great he was a great catalyst really Matt for me exploring it and writing the book which of course I had no intention to do because now 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 understanding what I do about narrative it's very confusing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so I'd known I was going to write a book about it I'd definitely have given him a different name um (laughs) but he was a because one of the things because we so I think this is the thing with me and my parents we talked about nothing else but Matty for those eight years Mm. and then after that I think then there was a time when he became a secret he became a you know, it was all so painful and we kind of tiptoed around it. Again, it's like um, it's like explosion metaphor. Again, like we would set off a mine if one of us accidentally put a foot yeah. in some sort of area. And then one day, my dad was telling a story and really rarely mentioned my brother. And it was because it was this quite... It was this time they went to the Helston boating pond and the canoe sank and my granny was on the land saying, that's my son-in-law. And my mum was saying, shut up, mum. My dad was really hung over and had been trying to get to the pub for a live here and it hadn't happened, you know. So my dad was telling the story, it was all quite funny. And, then, and Matt was in the back of the car and then he looked at me and he said, oh, he said, um, was there another boy called Matthew? And I just oh. thought like, oh, the, sort of the beauty of that. And then I just said, yeah, there was. And then that was part of me really realising I'd have to come up with you know because over the years I'd so I think the other thing as well about something happened to you when you're 15 17 or whatever people are still asking you a lot about your family aren't they so I I went off to university and everybody would say like what did you do at your a-levels and how many brothers and sisters have you got yeah yeah and you you just feel kind you know but over the years people asked less and I had worked out an answer so I said (laughs) I had a brother he died because I tried just pretending to be an only child, but that just made me feel really bad. Yeah, and someone, yeah, yeah. Once when I said that to someone, they said in a slightly certain way, they said, I thought so. You've got the air of an only child about you. <gasps> and and uh, again, rude. <laughs> I just was so taken aback with that. I don't, I mean, maybe they're even, maybe it's right and I've become, I, I couldn't even work out what that meant. I thought, well, I'm never lying again. Um, so I would say, I had a brother, he died. And then I would quite quickly say, it was a long time ago. Yes, Again, yeah, move it on, yeah, move it taking, on. Yeah, yeah. Taking the burden on myself of not making the other people feel yeah, awkward. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd kind of done that. And then I realised, as Matt got a little bit older, um, that that wasn't going to be enough. You know, that yeah. wasn't going to be enough for him and that I was going to have to try and find some words. And that was probably the start of me wow, managing to find some words. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
I really like, yeah, the sentence you get is just incredible, isn't it? You just, you just learn how to, oh yeah, my dad died when I was 15. Um, so uh, like, and I would just finish it then in a way of like, you don't need to ask about it. Yeah. And then at like 15, so ages ago, I'm at university now, you don't ask, God, who cares about that? Ages ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he wasn't ill for very long. That was good. Yeah, really good. He would have hated that. So, like, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So we're all over the joyed that it was a quick death. Yeah, brilliant. Like, <laughs> these, the quickness that, and the tone, and that most people don't know what you're doing, but they just pick up on the micro expressions, I think, you know? So they sort of go, oh, oh, right, I don't ask about that. No idea why. So I think, like, God, those sentences, and for you to have to realise that, yeah, oh, my son is, deserves more. <laughs> I, I can't get away with this. I can't. And I've had that with my daughter as well, of, of like, oh, yeah, he's dead. Well, why? And what happened? Like, okay, I'm going to have to think how I tell this to someone I love. And yeah. Oh, for him to say is another book about, oh, that made me well up. That's just, and in a funny way, I don't know, this is obviously me, I'm speculating, I don't know you at all, but like, maybe that's why you did it, that that conversation could continue, that it was, you know, somewhere in your brain, he is still here. Yeah, he is I still mean, very possibly. Yeah. yeah. Because again, the older I get, the more I am happy to accept that I don't really understand anything to a certain yeah. extent. Like, like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. who knows? I don't know why I do things. Quite often I'm, you know, I'm writing a novel at the moment and every so often I think like, oh, I wonder if I'm writing this novel because of this. Sometimes I think actually that I wrote my first book partly to tell the truth to my son, not that he's read it yet and might never read it. But also, I think I maybe wrote, wrote that book to have an honest conversation with my parents. Yeah, and maybe I did yeah. that. And maybe I wrote it to keep myself on the straight and narrow in life. Because I'm a great, you know, I am, uh, I have, I didn't used to always be able to do this, but I've taught myself emotional control. Mm. And I can, I, an actor friend of mine said, I can, she said, you're very good at performing a sane and happy version of yourself. <laughs> and it's, it's entirely true. You know, and I've trained yeah, myself yeah, yeah. to do it. I can actually have a panic attack in public and no one would know. Um, yeah. And I can, you know, I've done events where I've been asked like horrendous, horrible questions. I mean, mainly not. Most people are beautiful yeah, and respectful. Yeah. And truly, it's the great privilege of my life that people tell me stuff about themselves. But every so often, just horrible and I've just trained myself to like nod and smile and get myself through it but again mm. it's not it's it's obviously it's a very useful skill to be able to do that but it's not good for the soul in a way so yeah. I sometimes think that the reason I write things is to again keep myself on the straight and narrow make sure I'm not just pretending to be all okay all sort of you know jolly hockey sticks for whatever for want of a better word you know all kind of like yeah happy you know like, oh isn't this nice <laughs> yeah like I just finished my book and it it, it became a lot more memoiry than I mm -hmm. expected it to it was really I was like what's this pouring out of me <laughs> stuff that you thought you've dealt with that you're like oh and it's like it's hard to explain I feel like you go into a room and you're like no I'm just getting this box you're like oh oh gosh that's all oh dear it's all these other boxes <laughs> I better take them with me. Sorry, they are mine. These are all mine. I didn't. I didn't know I'd left them here. And um, I feel like yeah, like I when I finished the book and I read it, I was like, wow, clearly you you needed to put all this that like I had to sort of put it in an order. Yeah, and that's what I felt. It was a conversation with myself, age fifteen, to be like, that's what happened to you. 
Because mm-hmm. I was still, even though I do the grief class and I talk about it every week, it's very controlled. I ask the questions, I can edit, I can take out anything about my grief that I want to. Like mm-hmm. if I'm like, oh, I don't want everyone to know that happened. Like, whoop. And with the book, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't lie, can you? It's just like, it's it's there. and and But I feel similar to you that having, obviously it hasn't come out, so I'm in a very pre-birth of book situation but um it helped me deal with so much stuff like so much stuff just sort of being organized on a page Mm. and it's not obviously I'm very privileged I get to write someone made made me told me to write a book but I wanted to write a book but also like anybody I think the act of writing it down somehow gives you a control that you don't have in grief at all and what you were describing about the grief I do that all the time like the silent panic attack is, is a real, it's really bizarre to then leave somewhere with someone and be like, oh, I was having a panic attack. I just did it very quietly. Um, <laughs> and I wonder if that's partly a combination of, 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 yeah, of someone who's had grief in their life for a long time because you have to pretend in so many situations that sometimes everything's fine because if you do have this overwhelming grief, sometimes it's just not the place is it like you're just in like you know you're at school or you're like at a party and it's like oh I can't break down right now because it's so like I used to feel like people will call people they're like she's not okay like she lost her shit at a party and I don't want them to call people so I would learn how to put on like you said the sane version of myself and then go home and do it privately because it was like shit if everyone knows how bad it is like they might they might lock me up. <laughs> like, like. Yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly it. And of course, I did have a couple of those things early doors and then thought, that's, I can't do that. You know, I can't mm. do that. So then you learn to sort of stick the old mask on and yeah. um, kind of, you know, front it up a bit. And yeah, it's such a strange thing though, isn't it? I mean, I often think that that's it's another interesting thing about having children and watching children and think that, Again, quite often what we're teaching children to do is just lie about how they feel. Yes, yep, constantly. (laughs) You're fine, don't worry, brush it off, dust yourself down, be nice to them. Yeah, I know, I try and watch that as well because it is, you want to, yeah, if you do make the choice to have children and you start seeing how much you encourage them to lie about things. It's just terrifying Um, really, isn't it? You know, somebody gives them something and they say, I, I don't like this. this. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you're kind of like, you know, no, you've got to, you've got to, and you know, my son's always been good at again. He'll just say like, so I have to pretend to like it to be polite. Yeah, and I'm like, well, yeah. well, kind of, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm always <laughs> like, you have to at least say thank you. You don't have to like it. You don't have to play with it. But you just say thank you because what they did was they bought you something. Like yeah. that's all you're saying thank you for. But not liking it, <laughs> like, yeah. you just say thank you, and then we put it down because otherwise. Yeah, I know. It's 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 tricky and I think with grief it's so especially I wonder if you feel like this because when you're at that age of experiencing something so traumatic and everyone else is in a very different place. You know, everyone else is like, My life, I'm going off, what am I gonna do? Excitement and hope. And so I sort of felt like, Oh, it's not the I can't give this to anyone and also nobody wants it. Nobody understands it. You know, what do I it's it's either be my honest self and have no friends yeah. <laughs> or like oh, I'll come to your party and I'll be a bit quiet in the corner but I came and I said hello to people and I maybe had a fine time you know what I mean because everyone's yeah. in such a different lane at that point did you feel like that very yeah very much so and I think it's one of the things that was 
I don't think I was realised at the time what a big deal it was. I felt I'd really been marked out from everyone Ooh, else. And, yeah. it, it, you know, and all my friends were, you know, it was all sort of like boyfriend stories and interrailing. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I just didn't know how to be um, with them. I think I was really lucky, actually, because we lived in this pub. And I just spent a lot of time with <laughs> people in the pub. So, which came with its own problems, like, later on, because I got this nice boyfriend, and um, I was thinking about this the other day, and, I, I mean, I just didn't know how, I didn't know how to talk to his parents, or the people that they knew, because I just talked to, I talked to all grown-ups, like, they were customers in the pub, <laughs> which actually, lots of people didn't really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of just didn't, so I think I was this... I mean, I was a bit that way on anyway. I actually yeah. always liked the company of grown-ups more than I liked the company of my own age. And I would st- I'm a bit better these days, but still, like, I'm actually really psychologically comfortable with people who are about 20 years older than me. <laughs> and a lot of the friends, actually, I've made, I've made a lot of women friends in the last few years. I used to find, again, women in groups actually terrifying. Yeah. Um, and again, partly maybe because of having a brother, I would sort of gravitate to boys all the time. But I've made a lot of women friends in the last few years, but they are often, um, they're often kind of 10, 12, 15 years older than me. So I, yeah. I just, I don't know, there's something comforting for me in it, I think. So I did always like grown up uh, conversation and then just, so just sort of, in, you know, threw myself into that really. And then just always felt like a, I don't know, like a, I don't know, an outcast or an oddball or a, weirdo or whatever with people of my own age well, especially when you've been through something like you've been through like it's an unusual situation in grief world anyway and like you said it's a bit like we were saying earlier about kids of like how do you explain how do you drag someone into the club to be like look by the way where I live it looks like this like yeah. when they're like oh should I go to Berlin or should we go to Budapest you're like yeah 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 I did find I, I did find I sort of gravitated and still do I often find out later on again that someone I've made friends with or someone I've got a connection with something bad happened to them when they yeah, were yeah. 15 to 17 yeah. basically yeah and that's that's a really common thread in my friends people that again know how complex you know just know the complexities um, yeah. know the complexities of life I tend to be drawn drawn to them and then of course like the, it's not very nice for other people but one of the things about getting older is that just more people have suffered in their own club yeah, so yeah. there's le- less of a sense of being you know there's less of a sense of being the unusual one because more people have you know more people yeah. behind the rope yeah yeah, I definitely, as I've got older, been like, oh, wow, there's loads of us now. Like, when I got <laughs> here, as we were saying on, on the show, like, I got to the party early, put out the triglets, and there's no one here for ages. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just keeps filling up. You're like, oh, yeah, hi, yeah, yeah, I, I got here a while ago, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's, yeah it's that was exactly me. I like that metaphor, actually. Yeah, so I was, like, over in the corner with all the old drunks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> were like, oh, and then some other yeah. young people turned yeah. up. <laughs> and then it's awkward because you're like, oh, I'm actually made really good friends with the old drunks, so... Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is, these are my to people. You, I guess. These are my people. <laughs> so you're coming up to, what did you say, like, 32 years? Is that... I'm, I'm also yeah. terrible with maths, so... Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, since, yeah incredible and do really. you do you do anything for the anniversary or has it changed like it's changed yeah so at one point I I, I mean I used to think it was quite good that I don't because I'm really not very good with numbers like I think yeah, probably so. like I don't know like diagnosably something with numbers so yeah. 
I feel really fortunate. I've never managed to... I do, do know the date that Matty was knocked over, but I've managed to, like, not know when he died. Like, mm. it was summer. But I, at the time it happened, I was really intentionally trying not to give myself another date in the diary. Yeah, yeah. Um, the time I've always found most difficult, actually, is our birthdays. My birthday's in January. His birthday's in February. I still remember, because he was knocked over, and then my next birthday was my 18th, and I still remember it as, like, a complete shit show. Yeah. Um, and just like, like I mean, just like awful. And I realise now actually that one of the things is that I'm seasonally, you know, January and February are not my happy months. Yeah. So yeah. I, again, now that I understand myself more and I've had the good therapy, basically, and I don't drink anymore. That was the other thing. I mean, I was drunk for a couple of decades, really. So <laughs> I've sober since 2017, and therefore. Wow. Once you stop, amazing. I mean, who knew? Once you stop pouring in, like, several pints a day, yeah. then you notice other things. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. That, this is interesting. What, why do I suddenly feel so miserable? Oh, it's, maybe it's because it's January, and maybe actually spending all of January, all the light hours of January asleep because I'm so hungover isn't very good yeah. for me. So, so that's really eased, and then... I used to think of it like nails sticking out and you get snagged on them, the yeah. anniversaries. But these days, it's kind of... I'm still not a great celebrator. A friend of mine was asking me the other day, actually, because it's my 50th next. Like, oh, are you going to do something? I said, well, I've never yet enjoyed my birthday, so is it really <laughs> going to change? Because I've yeah. never had 50 of them. So, uh, again, I was not even aware of this, but I moved back to Cornwall with my family in 2017. And we... Because for years we hadn't picked up my brother's ashes. They were at the crematorium. Again, which I felt really bad about. And also, quite often, I wasn't even sure if that was true. I wasn't sure that we might not have done something, but that I'd been so drunk and mad that I actually couldn't remember it. And I didn't dare ask my parents about it. And one of the things that happened over me writing the first book was at some point I managed to kind of like choke out the question. And then my mum just said, no, they're probably still there. We just couldn't face doing the extra thing. Then, of course, I felt really bad about it that we hadn't done it. But I found out that loads of people don't do it. And it just, yeah. again, it's just that thing, isn't it? Sometimes it's just the, feel, not, the feeling of not being alone. But we scattered them in the sea down here. I, again, I didn't feel he wanted to be confined somewhere else. Mm. We scattered them in the sea and we just put a plaque on my granny's grave, which is in the cemetery uh, just down the road from my house. So, yes, I managed to move next door to the, my brother's... <laughs> So we did that, then I moved from London. You know, what a surprise. I I, I organised that plaque and then moved so that I could live next door to it so I could go walking there all the time and kind of... And sometimes I have a sit and sometimes I kind of just wave and walk by and what have you, but that feels like a really nice thing to do. Um, And I wouldn't now, I wouldn't particularly do that, like, on his birthday. I'd just do it, like... When, day, when you feel it like it um, and definitely now I'd say I'm more in and out with it like he's not I remember actually because I'm I think the only reason I know this is because the therapist asked me like, how often do you think about him and I mean it was still all the time mm. that was probably I mean that was just a handful of years ago it was just all the time as a um, it wasn't that he was all I thought about but it was like a constant thrum yeah. so it was like a, you know like if you imagine a sort of a graph it's it's that the line was ever present yeah Um, yeah. other things I got I could do other things but but that was just a a low level like white noise tinnitus Mm. that kind of thing 
And that's not the case anymore. I do actually have whole, you know, hours. <laughs> I mean, days, maybe, where I actually don't really think about it. And I don't feel... I don't feel quite so defined by it mm. as I used to. But again, also, I've just given up worrying about it because I think there are things that happen to you and kind of slightly like, so what if they're going to define yeah. me? It would almost be more weird if I'd lived through that experience and not been screwed up by it. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Luckily, because of having great parents and resources and good friends and I still I mean again I look back I still find it a miracle that nothing bad didn't happen to me mm. you know like when I was off, off my head and stuff but anyway didn't uh I was fortunate in the kindness of strangers and the love of friends and then later on some really amazing therapy and I'm here and I you know do my work and make my contribution and um I really like now my latest book is about writing and about writing it all down and helping people to write about things. Again, for whatever, however they want to, not necessarily yeah. to be a book, but it might be a book or just to use writing to do that thing you were talking about, that wrestling of the self mm. and, and to have a private space where you can really be yourself. And, you know, those are all the things I think about at the moment. And it doesn't feel like a bad place to be. Kathy, thank you so much. It was so interesting to talk to you. And remember, Matty, I can't recommend the books enough, especially if you're in the club. I think they will speak to you wholeheartedly. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been such a beautiful and joyous pleasure. You can find more about Kathy and all the books she's written on her website, kathyreadsbooks.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Kat Rentzenbrink. So that's Kat, C-A-T, Rentzenbrink is R-E-N-T-Z-E-N-B-R-I-N-K, Rentzenbrink. She's on Instagram as well. Um, her book is incredible. If you haven't read if you haven't read The Last Act of Love, I thoroughly recommend it, uh, or even Manual for Heartache and her novel, Everyone is Alive. She's an incredible writer. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. It was recorded remotely in my living room and Kathy's living room. And the music was provided by The Glue Ensemble, artwork by Jade Perkins, stop motion animation by Alice Loveday. And remember, <laughs> you are not alone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 